Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and if you're enjoying the show, you can subscribe to my newsletter where you'll receive every new episode a week early. Head to theconsumervc.com and click subscribe. All content and episodes are intended for informational entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. Our guest today is Mike Hirschland, co-founder of Resolute Ventures. Resolute Ventures is a lead seed and pre-seed investment fund focused on backing and connecting a community of founders who share an entrepreneurial spirit and energy. Some of their investments include BarkBox, Clutter, and Lumen. We discuss what pre-seed and seed investing looks like today, the opportunity within Web3, and how we build conviction within founders. Without further ado, here's Mike. Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I am doing great. I'm excited to be here and then be chatting with you, Mike. I appreciate that. I, I appreciate that. Thanks again for taking the time. I want to start. How did you enter the world of venture capital and what was your initial attraction to the sector? You know, it's it's a little bit of a random story, but when I was uh, probably 28, 29, I was actually working in Washington, D.C. I was counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee and uh, was ready to leave that, leave Washington. I knew I wanted to go into the business world. And I happened to, through just a set of circumstances, have a couple hour meeting with John Doerr. And this was... 1996, 97-ish. And he was very much the man to see. And I didn't know that. I just thought like, oh, this is a VC. But he was really cool. And I was just blown away. And he kind of gave me a little tutorial on why the internet was a big deal, was going to be a very big deal. I was convinced. And more importantly, I just kind of made like note in my mind, I want to be him when I grow up. So a couple of years later, when I was ready to, uh, to to look for a real job, I decided, uh, well, I, I just, I want to be John Doerr. So I'll go out and get into VC. That's awesome. So since the crash happened not too far after that, right? The dot-com crash, did that deter you at all from, from entering venture capital or even this, you know, thesis that, you know, John Doerr said about how the internet's real, it's going to be big. Did that at all change your thinking at all or not so much? Well, I'd be lying if I said it didn't affect me. You know, I think it was really hard. And and I was the junior kid joining this, the fund that I joined. And I kind of became chief triage partner where, you know, all the, the dogs that were really sucking wind became my job to try and figure out what the hell are we going to do? And that was not nearly as sexy and glitzy and exciting as the things that I was seeing in the late 90s that made me think, wow, venture capital would be really cool. So, you know, I had a couple of years in the trenches that were tough and it wasn't nearly as fun. And, I, you know, I wouldn't say that I was loving it. However, looking back on it now, I think going through that cycle and really having to just grind it out and learn a lot about the nuts and bolts of what it takes for a startup to survive in a tough environment, probably the best learning I've had in the 22 years in the business. What were like specifically some of the learnings through that kind of period during there? Because we've had on quite a few VCs. I mean, obviously we've been in such an incredible bull run for the past, you know, 14 years or so. And Many VCs that you know started their career in VCs after you know the 08 crash and, and what happened haven't really experienced this. It's been you know valuations going up and up and up and and you know 
as a macro side, companies generally doing pretty well. So what were some of the learnings since you were already in the business sector in venture capital during the 2000 crash as well as 08? Two really big learnings, lots of little ones, two big ones. The first was the most common cause of death for a startup is running out of capital. So learn that, you know, very much upfront and personal, obviously somewhat tongue in cheek, but capital preservation and uh, capital efficiency is something that kind of becomes passe during these bull markets when raising capital seems like, you know, it's so easy. But I think that's never really out of out of style for a startup. I think startups, the best founders and, and management teams are always super paranoid about having runway and having capital. That's one. And the other one is in go-go times, there's lots of, of uh, signals that investors and the startup community pay attention to. You know, sometimes I refer to it as, as pixie dust or sex appeal. It's, it's the things that get people excited and um, companies become hot. And there are things that are other than actually building a valuable and compelling product and business. And so I think the big learning was all that goes out the window when the cycle turns and investors are only going to invest in companies that are demonstrating that they're building something valuable. So I think the other big learning is just don't try not to pay attention during the bull markets, the go-go times, the bubbles to all of the hot, sexy things that people are, are pointing out and, ta- and talking about, just focus on the fundamentals and, and try and, and disregard that, all that stuff. With that being said, what's your diligence process like? And of course, you know, because it, it seems like you don't want to get too, um, you're not too interested in terms of, you know, the really hot kind of startup. And, you know, maybe that valuation is just, you know, you think is maybe overpriced or insane. But how do you think, especially during like these last few years, and, and I'd love also then later down the road, talk about this year as well and how the markets changed. But during these past, you know, few years, maybe the beginning of COVID or prior to COVID, what was your diligence process like? Since it seemed like a lot of investors that come on the show talk about how things just moved so quickly and deals just moved, like you were kind of like on the, like the flat of the wheel. So how did you think about that side of things when it comes to diligence? Well, uh, I think there's two, two pretty important factors that color the way we approach evaluating investment opportunities. One is the stage we're investing. So we are investing in early seeds and pre-seeds. We're not coming in series A. We're not coming in in the later, bigger seeds. It's really early days in a company's life. And our view, which is widely shared, but I think we're probably pretty far to one side of the spectrum in terms of the extent to which we're really focused on the founding team. We've got just a core philosophical approach to the business, which is to the extent you can, you know, to the extent you're right, just consistently back the best teams that, that you're seeing and really try to disregard, filter out. All of the other signals that might be coming in, deal competition, who else is investing, momentum, you know, traction. At the seed stage, none of that stuff is really signal. I think there's the merit of the idea and potentially how meaningful and valuable, you know, if realized, the vision could be. And fundamentally, just just the the merits of, of the team. And I think, you know, we do our best to focus almost entirely on the team and for us to be very uh, transparent, a lot of that is instinctive. So we typically draw 
a conclusion pretty quickly on whether we think somebody's a resolute founder or not. So we can typically move quickly and still remain faithful to our, our approach. So what makes then a great founding team? What are kind of areas that you like to see and also areas too that you think maybe are overhyped, maybe actually don't really matter as much? Yeah. So we're asked this question a lot. Like, well, what's your formula for evaluating the team? And I think my first response would be, we really don't have a formula. I think a lot of it is instinctive and we're wrong a lot. Um, So, you know, it's not like we have this perfect divining rod. But that said, I think that there are some patterns that we've seen that generally hold up. One is, is an easy one, which is we really need to see a team that amongst the founding team has the product chops to build a really good product. You know, the idea of a really smart, maybe, you know, marketing and finance team that's going to outsource product development to a third party. That's the antithesis of a resolute deal. I think we're looking for, for founders who, if nothing else, are obsessed with and we believe are pretty extraordinary at, at building compelling products. The other thing that I would say is we have noticed our most successful founders more often than not have a almost messianic need to solve the problem they're going after. It's pretty common for really smart entrepreneurs to spend, partner up and say, hey, you know, Let's found a company together. We're really, we complement each other well. We like working together. Let's spend six months kind of picking an idea. And then once we winnow out the good ones from the bad ones and really zone in, then let's go. And I would say, again, that is very much not a resolute deal. But what we love is founders who, in one way or another, have been chewing on and pursuing and obsessing on this particular problem for like a meaningful part of their life. One of the examples I, I like to use is Matt Mullenweg from Automatic, the creator of WordPress. He, uh, for years, had been obsessed with getting the whole world to self-published. That was a global vision that he had, and he just felt moved to do whatever he could to make that a reality. And, and that's the kind of uh, passion that we're, we're looking for, is people who, it goes beyond just this startup and this capital raise. It really speaks more to who they are and, and what motivates them. At your stage, early seed and pre-seed, first of all, how do you think about that stage in terms of average check size in the actual round? Because I know the needle has been moved around a little bit the past few years. So when I started Resolute 2011, 2012, the median check size was just north of 500K, which means a post-money valuation of five to six and a half million dollars. Things changed dramatically in the ensuing 10 to 12 years. And I would say in 2021, 20 and 21, when the market was, you know, the most uh, hyped, there was a you know very broad range, but I would say the, the norm, the median was looking more like a 12 to $15 million post. And for us, that meant a 1.2 to $1.5 million check. And I would also say, at the same time, there was a ton of deal flow that we just weren't engaging on because they were looking at valuations and round sizes much higher than that. And we stretch. We thought, you know, we stretched what we thought was really far. But there, there's a, there was a healthy portion of the seed financing that got done in 2021 that were 20 million dollar plus 
valuations. I'd say it's 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 definitely uh, returning now. I think of it in terms of uh, of time, and my sense is it's we're probably on our way back to three to five years before 2021 in terms of where valuations are heading. How do you right now approach investing in this market? I've heard some VCs pulling back, but what is your kind of strategy right now, as well as just any insight when it comes to the types of companies that would succeed currently? For us, we're really not not changing. We try pretty hard just to stick to our knitting. And for us, that means backing ballpark the 10 best deals we see in a year. Sometimes we back 12, sometimes we do eight, but we inevitably are just natural motion is about 10, you know, leading 10 financings a year. And so that's what we're doing. You know, we were a little bit ahead of pace earlier in the year. We kind of slowed down a little bit and, you know, I'd say we're, we're right on track. I think that because the market, the financing market has, is changing dramatically and valuations are becoming much more reasonable than they were six to 12 months ago. It's a good time to be investing. The other reason why I think it's a, it's an exciting time to be investing is the entrepreneurs who are starting things in this market really believe in what they're doing. You know, it's the, it's the really, it's the hardy committed souls, not the tourist entrepreneurs. So, but that being said, we're not going to change, you know, change our pace and say, well, it's a great time right now. So let's invest aggressively. You know, I think we have found that we just have a natural pace that feels comfortable, feels like it's it was what works for us. So that's what we're doing. I mean, it seems like if valuations are potentially coming down or if they have come down this year, it seems like you're in a pretty good position since you've raised now your your largest fund, have capital to deploy. If valuations are, you know, coming down or and maybe they aren't, but if they are, why wouldn't you invest more into different companies since they would be at lower valuations? Yeah, I guess the answer is pretty simple, which is, you know, my partner and I, we've both been doing this for, for a while and we have a, a way we do it that we feel reasonably confident in. We make plenty of mistakes, but there's a certain amount of time that we spend looking at new opportunities honing in on the ones that we want, you know, we think we're most interested in picking those and then backing them and working with the company post-investment. And I think if you're just looking at the dollars and cents, then yeah, you'd want to invest really aggressively. But if you're looking at the whole picture, which is how do we operate in terms of, of making new investments and evaluating them? And how do we manage uh, our portfolio and work with our founders during the early stage? That all would have to change if, if we were going to be changing our pace. And we've elected to kind of stick with what we know and like. After you made the investment into early stage companies um, at the pre-seed and seed uh, stages, what do founders most do you feel need from their investment partners? Um, and where do you think on the value side, you're, what you're able to provide um, when you think about value add? I think that there are, the way we think about it, there are two salient types of, of you know, value add. And I, I would, I'd rather use the term support. And I think the first one is underappreciated in general in the venture ecosystem, but for us is kind of the keystone to it all, which is a source of, of support, emotional support, strategic support. But fundamentally, um, for a founder or founders to 
realize that in, in the investment partner they've chosen is just 100% in their camp, in the boat with them, and there to help any way possible, including being able to hear and not overreact to bad news or personal struggle or, you know, it's, it's, it's really lonely being an entrepreneur. You, you need to be crushing it to the outside world. You need to be crushing it to your employees. You need to be crushing it to your investors. We try to create, you know, a container, if you will, between, uh, you know, us and, and our founders where they don't have to be crushing it. They can just be them experiencing whatever they're experiencing and know that there's someone there who's just going to be supporting them. And uh, there's not like a neat definition or category of value add that, that that falls into. And I don't think many investors see that as their role. But Renan and I, I think we see that as our most important role. How do you approach building your community? And also, how did you end up founding the, the Resolute uh, DAO? The community piece is just an outgrowth of, I think, how we approach the whole thing, which is a belief that human connectivity is uh, an incredibly valuable part of the experience. It is for us, you know, what what gets us out of bed in the day, uh, you know, is people that, that we love to work with and founders the same way. We just have always felt that fostering a real, truly connected set of peers, peer founders, is, would be a great source of, of support and, and value. The other piece of it is a little bit more prescriptive, which is, you know, as I, as I mentioned, my partner and I, on the one hand, we think being, just being there as a, as a supportive partner is incredibly value. On the other hand, we try to be really self-aware in that we're not in the trenches every day. And when particular tactical operational issues come up, we can be a sounding board, but unless it's around fundraising, it's almost guaranteed that we are not the best resource for that founder. And so, you know, for that reason, really having a community where our founders know each other and know who's good at what can be, uh, it's, a, it's a great compliment to us in the way we approach it. We, we don't try to, you know, have the authoritative answer on that many things, but we really try to help our founders connect with other founders in the portfolio who can be. So, you know, that's kind of, uh, I think, how we, how we think about it. We're just constantly thinking of ways to bring our founders together. Um, you know, every year we have Camp Resolute, which is a three-day smorgasbord of, of founder stuff. Some of it's just really fun. Some of it's more serious. And then, you know, over the course of the year, we're just always looking at opportunities to bring them together. Well, what's the also process, too? Because I know you, you bet on founders. Once they dictate the market that they're entering and the problem that they're solving. I'd imagine then your team goes back and kind of researches that market and develops and see if that maybe thesis aligns that, that you come with the founder. Does that kind of make sense? Our team is my partner and I. So we do whatever diligence is going to get done. You know, we don't have research associates or, or you know, principals. Kind of the way we do this, we feel like it's it's... It's, it's got to be us. We don't do deep research of markets because it's almost inevitable that for a, you know, early seed stage company, by the time they're actually at a point where in a success scenario, they have product market fit and they're starting to really scale. The team's understanding of what exact market they're addressing and what product it takes to address that market 
is really different than what the original idea was. And as well, it's typically the case that the market itself was very early in its development at the time the company was started. And so the combination of the market emerging together with the company trying to you know understand where it fits into the market it really wouldn't be that productive to do a bunch of analysis you know ex ante about something that's going to look really different when it matters what is one thing that you would change about venture capital humility there is a um, fascinating human phenomenon which uh, is very very common which is when somebody becomes the person who has the capital and is doling it out to people who are seeking it. And this isn't limited to venture capital. It's very common for the capital allocator to start to develop a very robust view of their intelligence and their capabilities, and also to ascribe successes to their brilliance. And in reality, a lot of venture capitals are brilliant and a lot aren't. And a lot of the big venture successes are pretty lucky. And so, uh, you know, I think that the thing that bothers me the most about our industry is instances when, in particular, when I'm a co-investor in a company and it feels like the investor is taking the position that they're telling the founder what to do because they've seen, you know, they've seen it all and they know all the answers. I think that just arrogance is too common in, in, in our business. What's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally? Personally, it's called As It Is by Toku Rinpoche, who's a Buddhist master, was a Buddhist master. And I'd say over the last five to 10 years, I have found his teachings and uh, others kind of in the general Buddhist category uh, incredibly helpful personally. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, I'm excited to add that to to our book list because I don't think we've actually had anyone add it as it is on our book list. So my final question to you is what's one piece of advice that you have for founders that are either in the ideation stage or or maybe um, or maybe have like a, a full-on product but still in that kind of early stage? The first I would say is Really dig deep and understand why you're trying to do what you're trying to do. Get as much clarity on your personal motivation and make sure that aligns with uh, the success of the business. Uh, we spent a few minutes talking about, you know, we're really looking for people who are really passionate about solving a particular problem. That's not the only way to, to approach and build a successful business. But I think sometimes it can be a little bit confusing and disorienting being a founder because you have so many different things coming at you. I think the one favor you can do yourself is be really clear on what's motivating you and, and stay true to that. And the other thing I would say is don't stop obsessing on the customer. You know, it can consistently find that it's the founding teams that are truly obsessed with the customer, talks to them every day, really is penetrating and understanding you know, why they are or aren't doing what they're doing. Inevitably, that's the way to find product market fit. And so I think, you know, just a, a zealous attachment to the customer is an incredibly important attribute mindset. That's helpful. That's really helpful. Mike, thank you so much for your time. This has been a lot of fun. Well, Mike, it's been great questions. I really enjoyed our conversation. 
And there you have it. It was a pleasure chatting with Mike. I hope you all enjoyed listening. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.